Welcome. Uh, we're continuing our series on biblical themes. And uh, if you have your notes, if you grabbed them on that little music stand uh, right there as you walk in, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the theme of beauty, uh, beauty throughout the scriptures. But before we go too far, uh, I want to define our terms. And so I have a, a definition, a very simple definition there uh, of beauty. Beauty, as we'll be discussing today, is what I would describe as God's conspicuous glory. Now, conspicuous, that's a word that's not really used uh, that much today, but I couldn't think of a better word to describe what I'm trying to say. But something that is conspicuous is something that calls attention to itself. Okay, it's like, hey, look at me, here I am, you know, right here. Being conspicuous means it's, it's out in the open for all to see, to be clearly perceivable. It's not a challenge to see something that is conspicuous. And beauty is God's conspicuous glory. God fills our world with beauty, with beautiful things, beautiful things to see, beautiful places, beautiful things to hear. And our world is filled with beauty. And what I'm saying is that wherever you see or experience beauty, what you are seeing and experiencing is God's conspicuous, God's perceivable glory. God's saying, there I am. You know, that's what I'm like. That sunset and all of its beauty is showing for all to see God's glory. That beautiful song that you hear on a piano, you're hearing the sound of God's glory. That's what I mean when I say that, the, that beauty is God's conspicuous glory. And this sort of God-glorifying beauty is something we see over and over and over throughout the scriptures, from the meticulous beauty of the Garden of Eden all the way to the beautiful new heavens and new earth and gemstone-bedazzled new Jerusalem described in uh, Revelation 21. So from cover to cover, and there's lots of beauty in between. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. And to help us do that, I've divided our time into six sections uh, that sort of follow the storyline of Scripture, uh, pretty much like we do every week in this class. So number one, all beauty is a gift from God. Number two, we are called to cultivate beauty to the glory of God. Number three, we exploit beauty for our own glory. Number four, Jesus redeems the beauty we destroy. Number five, we're still called to cultivate beauty to the glory of God. And number six, God gives eternal beauty. If you're a, if you're a, a you know, a literary device, if you're a, a nerd of, of English or of grammar or of, of storytelling, this is actually presented in chiastic structure. One relates to six, two relates to four, or two relates to five, and three relates to four. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't want to. It's just nerd stuff, okay? That's what we're talking about today. Let's begin with number one, numero uno. says, all beauty is a gift from God. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When the psalmist is saying, he's saying that when you look at the skies above and at the stars, and you see the pastel reds and purples and fiery orange of a Texas sunset, that's probably what the psalmist has in mind, Texas sunset, the, that beauty declares the glory of God. That sort of beauty is a gift that God has cultivated and formed into everything that he creates. The story of creation in the beginning of Genesis is a story of God's gracious giving of beauty. 
And I want us to pause and recognize that created beauty is an unnecessary gift. Created beauty is an unnecessary gift. Let me explain what I mean. God is beauty. Everything beautiful derives its beauty from God, who is the source. He's the wellspring of beauty. Just like God is the wellspring of goodness because God is good. Just like God is the wellspring of love because God is love. God is beauty. God is the the definition and the source of all that is beautiful. Good? We got that? So created beauty, the flow out from the God of beauty, is an unnecessary gift. God, who is a trinity, three in one, was happily existing, enjoying the beauty of and within his own being for all eternity. God has no need of creating something beautiful. God was not lacking something when he created the universe and all of its beauty, but he graciously pours out from himself beauty in his creation. God takes the beauty of himself and he pours it out. This is unnecessary, meaning it's not something God had to do. It's not about utility. God doesn't need to create in order to get glory. He has glory. God doesn't need to create to enjoy beauty. He is beauty. But instead, God graciously gives this gift of himself beauty. So think of Genesis 1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is basically just saying, one day God got to work. And it's this creative work that God is doing. In an instant, the eternal, Trinitarian, beautiful God begins to cultivate handiwork. And he gives from himself beauty. And that description of creation in Genesis, as you read the Genesis narrative, is very much like a craftsman cultivating a masterpiece. Where the, Remember, the earth was formless and, and void, but then God begins to shape it and sculpt it and cut it here and add something here and put this stuff over here so that it just looks the way he'd like it to look. And notice what it says after each aspect of the earth that he creates. It doesn't just say that it was good. Sometimes we say that. We say, God finished his work and he called it good. Or, or God created and he said it was good. That's not what the Bible says. Genesis says, I have the listed there again and again in your notes. God, God saw that it was good. God looked upon it and saw its beauty, saw that the light was good. He saw everything that he had made and behold, he, he beholds it and it was very good. So what God creates is a delight to his eyes. He sees his creation, and flowing from himself, the God of beauty, it's beautiful. Now, if you're familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 sort of gives us a, an overview of the creation story. The very basic overview is the, the basics of God's created masterpiece. But then Genesis 2 really zooms in on some, some details, and it shows us the ornate and meticulous beauty of God's creation. So look at Genesis 2, 8 through 12. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. And can we just sort of pause and take that in? That the God of the universe is, is planting a garden, you know, something people do when they retire, right? When they have, finally, they have time to dedicate to planting and maintaining a garden. Because what's the point of a garden? What's its purpose? To be beautiful, to smell beautiful. I love going to the Dallas Arboretum in the middle of the spring. Because everywhere you go, it smells amazing. Everywhere you look, it's beautiful. Gardens provide beauty. 
that's it. That's what a garden's for. When you're in your 20s and 30s, when you have small kids, you don't have time for beauty. Everything has to have a purpose. Everything has to have a utility. But once you mature a bit, I'm told, still waiting for that, you find not everything has to have a purpose. Not everything has to have a utility. Beauty can be reason enough. And notice here, it's reason enough for God. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. See that? And good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God just, he's planting, God grows trees that are beautiful, a delight to the eye, they're pleasant to the sight. They're diverse. They, they could have been designed for pure utility. They could have just all been the same type of tree. They could have just been gray globs with mush for fruit, you know, pure sustenance. All, what I'm saying is all this beauty is unnecessary. You might even say superfluous, but God gives it from himself. And then look at verses uh, 10 through 12. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. So notice what's buried in the ground. Mankind doesn't see it. It's underground. Gold is. That's where gold is formed. Buried under the soil. God creates gold, and particularly good gold. A better translation there would be pure gold. It's beautiful gold. Now, what's the purpose of gold? Is it, is it known for its usefulness and its utility? Do you want to build a hammer out of gold? No, that's going to be worthless. It's too soft. What's the purpose for gold? It's just beautiful. Gold, especially pure gold, is just a gift of beauty used for decoration. That's what God creates. So my point is, God is a God of beauty. Don't reduce God to a God of utility. And don't reduce, reduce the life that God gave you to pure utility either. For everything has to be practical and everything has to have an exact and precise purpose and outcome. God did not create the world that way and he didn't create you that way either. God is not a God of utility. He's a, a gardener. He's a craftsman. He's an artist. He created gold and weird animals like the platypus, an egg-laying venomous mammal. Not for utility, but for beauty. God is a God. Yeah, you didn't know that. They're venomous. That's crazy. <laughs> God is a God of beauty, a God of creativity, a beautiful design. You may find beauty and aesthetics unimportant, but you didn't learn that from God. Creation displays the glory of a God who is beautiful and gives of himself in created beauty. Now, it's one thing for God to create a beautiful world that's a delight for his own eyes. That's one thing. But it's an incredible gift of grace for God to create and put in that world also creatures with our own eyes who can share with God and beholding and then even cultivating the beauty he's created. That's exactly what he does. God's creation is a beauty that he shares, specifically with mankind. And he creates us to share in the cultivation of the beauty of his creation. Please, number two, we are called to cultivate beauty 
to the glory of God. Look at Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God commands mankind to care for and cultivate his creation, to explore the earth and to fill it with more beauty. To be fruitful doesn't only refer to mankind's procreation and reproduction, but also mankind's cultivation of the beauty of the garden. This is meant to be an expanding garden that goes out from Eden to spread across the entire earth so that everywhere you look on the planet, the conspicuous glory of God is displayed. Beauty everywhere, declaring God's glory. And that work of cultivation and enjoyment of this beauty is given to mankind. Which means that to be human and to exist as God designed us to exist is to be people all about the business of spreading not just good doctrine, and logic, and reason, and ideas, but also beauty. We're called to cultivate beauty, create and care for beautiful things that glorify God, and point to him as the wellspring of beauty. That's what it looks like to image God. If he's a gardener, we ought to be gardeners. If he's an artist, we ought to be artists. If he's a craftsman, we ought to be craftsmen, not simply working for a paycheck, but crafting building, creating, cultivating beauty and spreading the glory of God across the earth. And that's what Adam and Eve are called to do. But do they? Is that what they do? Do they fill the earth with Eden-like beauty which glorifies God? No. Well, at least not for very long, because we all know how it goes. Number three, we exploit beauty for our own glory. Exploit beauty for our own glory. Instead of spreading God's beauty, they exploit God's beauty for their own glory. So just as a refresher on Genesis 3, God planted a tree in the garden, and he called the tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he commanded Adam and Eve to not eat from that tree. They can eat from any other tree, just not that one, from that tree. And sometimes in depictions of this tree in like movies or uh, little cartoons or art or whatever, it's all like gnarly and evil looking. That's wrong. That tree isn't evil. The tree's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with this tree. Nothing bad about this tree. It's just as beautiful and God glorifying as the tree of life. God just says, don't eat from it. Don't eat from that tree, that beautiful tree that I've created. But then the devil tempts Eve he actually says she'll, she'll be like God if she eats from that tree. And so we get Genesis 3, 6 through 7, which says, So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. Okay, so far, so good. She's perceiving correctly. The tree's beautiful. Delight to her eyes. It's good for food. She's seeing it, experiencing the conspicuous glory of God, but... As Eve looks at this beautiful tree, that delight that it would have brought her, it would typically direct her thoughts towards the glory of God, but not this time. That's not where her mind goes. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and look at this, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
And the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. So her mind this time goes to her glory, not God. She sees, she sees a, an opportunity to exploit this beauty for the sake of her own glory, for the sake of elevating her own wisdom to better display her glory the, or the glory of mankind. And notice she immediately shares the fruit with her husband. Eve becomes, she's the first evangelist. But her gospel is the glory of man. She shares it. And that's what Adam and Eve begin cultivating. And it begins to spread. And the beauty of the garden is no longer expanding out of Eden. Instead, it's the glory of man. And Adam and Eve immediately get to work destroying the garden's beauty, starting with themselves. You see, the first thing Adam and Eve do is cover up the beauty of God's creation. They stifle it. The beauty God has given to them. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God has formed into everything he's made the beauty that points to his glory. But now Adam and Eve cover up this beauty. Why? Because it competes with their own glory. They cover God's glory to protect their own glory. And that is the story of mankind's sin. Taking the beauty that God has given us for his glory and exploiting it for our own glory, covering over it and destroying it in the process. And that's what Adam and Eve take with them as they are forced out of the garden. It's not beauty that goes forth from Eden across the world. Instead, they bring with them thorns and thistles and violence, and chaos and disaster. And that's what mankind multiplies and fills the earth with. And so beauty really just becomes a means to an end for mankind a tool to be used to prop up our own glory. And anything that brings shame or messes with our glory, we cover it up, it gets destroyed. That's what happens when beauty becomes a means to an end. That's why I so emphasize that God is a God of beauty, not utility. Because the moment you start thinking of beauty as a means to an end, you'll destroy all the God-given beauty that doesn't serve your own desires. And that's what we see happening again and again as we read through the Bible. I'll highlight two particularly relevant stories for the sake of time. As always, we could go through so many, and I had so many in my notes, but my teaching was like two hours long, okay? So we're just going through two. Uh, Tower of Babel and David and Bathsheba. So let's begin with the Tower of Babel. Just a few chapters after Eden, there are people living in this land east of Eden, and listen to their desire in Genesis eleven three through 4. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a, ma a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so first, <clears throat> notice that they're cultivating something. They're creating a city and a tower. The language here even sounds like God's creative language. Come, let us make man in our image, God says. They say, come, let us make bricks. And let's build a city and build a tower. And our translation doesn't really as clearly describe what's happening here as it could, but they create brick as a substitute for stone instead of stone. And they use bitumen or tar, asphalt, instead of mortar. And so they're apparently in an area where stone and mortar would be hard to come by or would take too long. 
And so they're just innovating. They're just creating new ways of construction. But this innovation isn't beautiful. It's just useful. Stone and mortar is much cleaner, more beautiful than brick and tar. How many of you have brick and mortar houses? Not many of you have brick and tar houses because it would look horrible. But they don't have time for beauty. They're busy cultivating a name for themselves. So beauty to sinful humanity is only as valuable as it is useful. Useful for glorifying themselves. And so they get to work building something big and ugly for their name's sake. And notice what they're trying to avoid. They explicitly say they're building this tower and this city lest what happens? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They're explicitly rejecting the created mandate given to humanity to fill the earth with the beauty of God. Instead, they want to stay put in glory in themselves. So like Adam and Eve, they're rejecting God's command. And instead of spreading beauty, they're building up themselves, spreading chaos, spreading ugliness, and destroying beauty in the process. Let's talk about David and Bathsheba. And we, we talk about this story a lot because it's such a clear picture of the sin of humanity, but especially among the righteous people of God. That's why I talk about that story a lot. Sin is not an out there thing. It is, it is definitely an in here thing. And David, the righteous king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, exploits the God-given beauty of Bathsheba for his own glory and destroys the God-given beauty of her husband in the process. Look at 2 Samuel 11.2. I love how menacing this is. It happened. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, better translation there is bed, and was walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Her beauty was given by God for God's glory, and her beauty was given by God for her husband, for, for him to see his wife and delight in her and experience the glory of God in her beauty. But that's not David's aim. Verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman, and one of his men, I love this, said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers, and he said, oh, yeah, thank you for your help. He's like, whoa, whoa, dude, isn't this, don't we know her? Isn't this wrong? David's like, thank you for the information. Sent messengers and took her, came to him, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, okay, that time of the month, coming. She, she's at the end of that time. And then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David exploits her beauty for his own glory, to fulfill some fantasy he conjured up in his head as he peeked into her window from the roof of his palace. In our day, exploiting beauty in this way for our own sake, for our own desires, is a statistically prevalent activity. Pornography is easy to access easy to conceal. Again, David's sin is not an out there thing. It's an in here thing. So it, it does you no favors to shake your head at David and then leave here and do the very same thing. David exploits her beauty. This is what we do as humans. We, exploits her beauty, leaves only destruction in the wake. First off, he destroys 
his righteousness by breaking the law. I included Leviticus, which is what is being referenced in 2 Samuel. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not, these, back to back, these verses, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Okay, so no gray area there. But then he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah a man created by God in the image of God. David destroys and covers up this man to cover his own shame, to protect his own glory. Again, just like Adam and Eve in the garden covered over their shame. And so here's what all these stories show us. Mankind's habit, our habit is to exploit beauty, to even destroy beauty if it means building up our own glory. When our glory, our, our own desires are paramount, we will destroy anything, no matter how beautiful, in our path. As we read through the Old Testament again and again and again, the beauty God has given to humanity is destroyed as man seeks to glorify himself. Creation is destroyed. People again and again are exploited, are hurt. The fertile ground is made into a wilderness, to use the language of the prophets. God's beauty isn't cultivated. Instead, devastation and sin fills the earth. And it's clear mankind cannot restore our former beauty. We need the giver of beauty, the source, the wellspring of beauty to redeem the beauty we've destroyed. As you read the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God begins to make these promises. Hope is injected into the storyline of humanity. That yes, though all seems lost, and there's so much devastation, God promises to give the beauty of himself again, to pour out from himself the beauty mankind has squandered once again. Listen to Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And so you hear this creation language all over again. God's planting beautiful things, raising beautiful things from out of the ground for his glory. And notice that he calls his people once again to cultivate it. They're the ones who are going to build up the ruins. They're the ones that are going to raise up what's destroyed and repair what their sin has ruined. It's this beautiful picture. But, sorry to be a Debbie Downer, but what's to stop them from making the same mistakes once again? I mean, isn't it sort of foolish to trust people who have again and again and again destroyed the beauty God has given? Like they're somehow going to act differently. Somehow it's going to be different this go around. But God isn't a fool because he doesn't base this covenant on the trustworthiness of people. That would, be, that would be foolish. 
Instead, he establishes this covenant himself, guaranteeing that the beauty they've destroyed will be redeemed, and he does this through the gift of his son. This brings us to number four. Jesus redeems the beauty we destroy. So we said all beauty is a gift from God, and so God pours out. God sends his son, the image of the invisible God, the exact image of the God of beauty to redeem what humanity has destroyed. And he does this in two ways. He redefines our fallen understanding of beauty, and he cultivates and restores what has been destroyed. So first, Jesus redeems the beauty we've destroyed by redefining our fallen understanding of beauty. Here's what's funny, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. Isaiah says of the Messiah in Isaiah 53, 2 through 3, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And so some people might say, hey, well, you can't say Jesus was beautiful because look, Isaiah said he wouldn't be. But that's not the point Isaiah is making. Okay, Isaiah is, is trying to say that Jesus did not possess a beauty that drew attention to his flesh, to this fallen definition of beauty that just terminates on mankind's glory. But rather, Jesus sets before us a greater beauty, a God-given beauty. And we see such a contrast in the transfiguration in Matthew 17, 1 through 5. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. He was tra transformed. He was changed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. So that's an understatement. If, we, if you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is beautiful, but not according to the standard of the glory of men. Jesus' beauty is a greater beauty given by God. And remember our definition of beauty, the conspicuous glory of God. Is this not the clearest picture of the conspicuous glory of God? So Jesus redefines our fallen understanding of beauty. Beauty as Jesus displays it isn't limited to the appearance of or bone structure or silky hair or the presence of hair, right? Rather, beauty is that which displays and reveals the glory of God. So yes, physical attractiveness displays and images God's glory. I'm sure that's why they asked me to teach this. But Jesus shows us that so does loving your neighbor or caring for others or serving one another. Good works, humility, expanding the kingdom of God. Remember, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Jesus defines beauty for us in his living. He is our example. He is our definition. He is our standard for beauty. But he also cultivates beauty. 
by restoring what has been destroyed. He cultivates and restores what has been destroyed. Jesus takes up the mandate given to mankind to expand the beauty of the garden across the earth, and in his ministry, we see him immediately get to work. For example, as we've seen even in our sermons recently, as Jesus heals people and he's casting out demons, he's restoring beautiful order to creation, order that's been lost. He's reversing the destructive effects of mankind's sin. As he heals lepers, he's cultivating beauty. How so? Great question. I'll answer it. Do you think that the Pharisees or the religious leaders in Jesus' day saw those with physical ailments like leprosy, those oppressed by demons, tax collectors, people they called sinners, do you think he saw them as, the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw them as beautiful? No. You know why? Because these, the lowly, the sinner, the weak, weren't useful to the Pharisees. Beauty to sinful humanity is only as valuable as it is useful, useful for glorifying themselves. And so the leper, the blind, the lame, the sick, the sinner had no beauty, nothing to attract sinful humanity to them. But Jesus is a God of beauty, not a God of utility. So Jesus sees in the the lowly and delights in the sinner and sees in them God's conspicuous glory the beauty of God's image bearers. And so he gets to work restoring the beauty of God's creation by lifting up the useless, by healing the sick, raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, comforting those who mourn. Again, it's this creative act. It's creation all over again. Jesus is cultivating beauty among those who had been destroyed. But then all this culminates really in the most beautiful display of God's glory ever cultivated in humankind, which is Jesus' death on a cross. And yes, you could say that there's nothing beautiful about a cross. I mean, that's true with most lives that are poured out on a cross. But remember, Jesus is the God of beauty. And when he pours out, it's beautiful. And so as Jesus pours out from himself his blood, his life, what flows out is beauty. Namely, our debt of sin is paid. Our relationship to God is restored. Our righteousness is established. We who are captives of sin are proclaimed free. And furthermore, having accomplished all this, our glorious Savior is then raised in beauty, resurrected in a glorified, beautiful body, having defeated the curse of death. I mean, what could be more beautiful? And so think of it, as another work of creation. As Jesus is dying on the cross, the triune God is saying, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Let us create something beautiful. Let us make man righteous, forming a people that bear the image of God, a people filled with the Holy Spirit, a people that walk like Jesus. And out from Jesus flows his church and all of her beauty. Jesus graciously gives from himself beauty. And so Jesus restores what we had destroyed. And he cultivates Eden-like beauty once again within God's people. And as we await his return, when he's promised to destroy death and the devil once and for all in this sort of in-between place, 
Jesus gives us, God's people, the work of cultivating the earth, filling this earth with his beauty till he returns, which brings us to section five, where we are still called to cultivate beauty to the glory of God. Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, having created his church, having created his image bearers, just like in Genesis, now Jesus commands his church to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with beauty. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came to his disciples, to his, to his church. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is Jesus' creation mandate. He says, I've shown you how to cultivate beauty in a broken world. You've been my disciples. I've shown you the way. Now go, therefore, and disciple others. Go, therefore, fill the earth with God-glorifying works so that all nations are given a front-row seat to the conspicuous glory of God, to beauty. That is the mission of the church. It's always been the mission of humanity, and that ought to be our mission as well, Parkway, to cultivate beauty in our world by being beautiful and cultivating beauty and, and expanding that beauty across McKinney, you know, across Texas, across the U.S., across the world. And so how should we go about that? How should we be beautiful? What does it look like to display the conspicuous glory of God? I think Paul gives us an excellent description in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. It says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. How can we display the beauty of God? You see that so clear, good works. By contrasting worldly definitions of beauty or attractiveness, men, by not being attractive as the world would think, not by being angry, domineering fighters, he says, without anger or quarreling, that's what self-glorifying beauty looks like. Quarreling, dominating your enemy until you, you reach the top, cutthroat. Paul instead says, no, live a life of lifted hands in prayer to God, meaning a life of peace, a life of trust in our sovereign God, a life of accepting the place that God has put you in and relying on him to sustain you through it. That is beautiful because it's the display of the glory of God. It displays that the treasure that you have in heaven is greater than anything that you could gain by fighting here. It displays that God's will is more glorious than your will, that you submit to it. It displays that this light and momentary affliction that you experience pales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that God has promised to give. And see, the world offers a beauty that must be taken. You've got to grit your teeth to get it. But God offers a beauty that is given by looking to him for our beauty. In doing so, we display his glory. That's the beauty we're called to fill the earth with. Not drawing attention to ourselves for our own glory. That's what the braided hair and gold and pearls stuff is about. So this, I think this verse is used 
wrongly all over the place. This is not a command, you know, for never to have nice looking hair. This is not a command to, I would say, not spend a lot of money on clothes. In fact, if you want my two cents, I think actually most Christians dishonor God by spending too little on clothes by buying things made in sweatshops. That's just my opinion. That's a whole other conversation. But the whole point here is Paul's calling Christians to invest our time not in attracting the attention of our own glory. That's not the point of clothing or hair. That's not beautiful according to God's word. What is? Good works. Good works. How can we display the beauty of God, cultivate beauty in our world? By going, therefore, and observing what Christ has commanded. By being obedient to his word. Good works. Good works are the beauty we should cultivate, including even the good work of repenting when we neglect to do the good works that Jesus has commanded. Teaching others to spread beauty and God's glory in the same way. Again, being fruitful and multiplying isn't just about human reproduction. Again, I actually think many Christians dishonor God by having tons of babies but neglecting to disciple them. We're called to cultivate beauty by multiplying disciples of Jesus, whether they're our own children, especially our own children, or simply a human being made in the image of God. Now, one more thing I want to talk about concerning the cultivation of beauty, and I'll warn you, I could spend all day on this. I believe that we're called to cultivate beauty by multiplying good works and disciples all across the earth. We've covered that, I think, sufficiently. But I also believe that we're called to cultivate beauty by creating beautiful things. Because God is a God of beauty, not of utility. In other words, I'd say that good works include creative works. So you remember what Jesus did at the wedding in Cana? You know, this is very first miraculous sign. What amazing thing did he do at the wedding in Cana? Turned water to wine. And I have the text in your notes. I'll just summarize it. Jesus' mom, she comes to him. They're at a wedding. She's like, yo, Jesus. I think that's what it says. It's my translation. <laughs> you know, the party's run out of wine. And Jesus is like, why do I care? He doesn't say that. But he's just like, why? And she's like, no, no, no. Can you do something? And he's like, okay. So he tells his servants to fill these big jars of water, uh, fill them with water, and then take a scoop out, take it to the MC, you know, the master of ceremonies. He says, hey, have the guy taste it. And the guy drinks it, and it's wine. It's not water anymore, it's wine. And Jesus didn't just reproduce the wine that they had been drinking, that they ran out of. The, the MC says, this is good wine. It's a delight to taste. It's beautiful wine. Which shows us that when Jesus creates, it's beautiful. Now, I use the wine example first because I enjoy wine, but also because it's so superfluous. It's so unnecessary for Jesus to have made beautiful wine. But Jesus can't help but create beautiful wine because he's a God of beauty. In the same way, following the example of Jesus, I believe that when the people of God create things, we're called to cultivate beautiful creative works. I think there's something uniquely God-glorifying about planting a garden in your backyard. I think there's something uniquely God-glorifying about writing a poem and sharing it with others. I think Christians have a calling to create beautiful things because in so doing, we are imaging our God of beauty and filling the earth with God-glorifying beauty. 
And to be honest, I think that this is an area, a huge area of weakness in our little sliver of Christianity, theologically reformed, evangelical. I think we have a tendency to neglect the beauty of God to a God-dishonoring degree. I think we do a great job of emphasizing that God's a God of reason, that God's a God of logic, that God's a God of sound doctrine, God's a God of order, church membership, he's a God of church governance. Those are all great things, but a God of beauty? So I think we could learn a lot, for example, from our brothers and sisters in the Anglican church and their recognition of the importance of beauty and aesthetics in worship, as demonstrated by their love for creative arts. I think we learn a lot from a lot of de denominations that, yes, we disagree with theologically, but we have to be honest, we are far inferior to when it comes to faithfully displaying the glory of God, who is a God of beauty. Honestly, because for many of us, beauty doesn't sound all that useful. It's just superfluous. The arts, like painting, creating music, culinary art, like making, enjoying good food, gardening, these sorts of creative works, frankly, aren't emphasized and aren't practiced within our Christian circles. Sometimes, many of us, we even roll our eyes at them. Or we run in fear of, of beauty becoming an idol. And yes, beauty can become an idol. But sound doctrine can also lead to self-righteousness. We don't roll our eyes at sound doctrine. Our God is a God of beauty. He's the creator of all that's beautiful. And I believe that we are called to be creators as well, to create beauty to share with the world around us. Our church suffers when we don't. Because we're closing our eyes to an aspect of who God is, of who God created us to be. I could talk a lot more about this. Maybe you'll ask good questions in the Q&A. Or we can always get coffee. Reach out. My point is we're called to cultivate beauty. So go cultivate a garden, like literally in your backyard. Work it. Keep it. Don't pay somebody else to do it. Work the ground. Make it beautiful for no other reason than glorifying and imaging your God of beauty. Paint a painting and, and, and work hard to create it. Don't just be like, because Tim told me so. Don't do that. Paint, like, work hard. Work so hard that you need to rest from it from the, on the seventh day, right? Hang it up in your house. Support and listen to beautiful music, okay? Very little of which is Christian music, in my opinion, most Christian music is just manufactured shallowness. Beautiful things are worth diving deep into. Most Christian music hardly passes for background noise. Just my opinion. Write beautiful music. Write poetry. Work hard at it. Cultivate beauty. Don't just consume, create. Because we're called to cultivate the beauty of God. Bear his image to a world hungry for beauty with many substitutes. What an opportunity and what grace that God invites us to create. Let's continue. Final section, and then we'll take some questions. Number six, God gives eternal beauty. This is our hope, right? Thankfully, spreading beauty across the earth isn't dependent on us. It's very good news. Jesus had promised that, has promised that he will return and when he does, he'll establish his eternal kingdom of beauty on earth. He'll make beautiful once and for all, all the beauty we've neglected or destroyed. And in Revelation 21, John describes the earth being recreated, made completely new. It's this complete overhaul, only necessary because of the beauty we've destroyed. 
Just like in the beginning, the new creation is beautiful, but meticulously beautiful. And I love John's description of the new city of Jerusalem in Revelation 21, which is a metaphor, by the way, there's my view, a metaphor for God's eternal dwelling place with man. Revelation 21 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. What comes with the glory of God? It's radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was, there it is again, pure gold, like clear glass. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And I'm going to really mess up the pronunciation with these. The first was jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, how do you say that? Yeah, here's what that sounds like to me. <laughs> no idea what y'all said. Agate or whatever. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, onyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The 11th, jacinth, the 12th, amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Gosh, how meticulous. God is a God of beauty. I mean, listen to all that. It's unnecessary. It's superfluous. We will dwell with God in eternal beauty, even more beautiful than what John is describing, what you can imagine here with all of these gemstones that he's describing. We'll dwell with eternal beauty forever. And all that destroys God's beauty today will be destroyed. And we'll feast in beauty from everlasting to everlasting. What grace. So look to your future with hope. Enjoy every bit of the beauty that we're given today. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, take some questions. Father, we thank you that you're good. Thank you that you are a God of beauty. You've created us. You call us beautiful. Um, you delight to, to, to see us. You delight in good works. Um, Father, I pray that uh, we would glorify your name, that we would cultivate beauty, that we would expand uh, your kingdom of beauty, and that we would hope uh, an eternal beauty, not in temporary fleeting beauty. Uh, we thank you for your scriptures, which teach us, which conform us to your image, to the image of Christ um, by the power of your spirit. We thank you for grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.